My name is Mark McGuinness, and this is the 21st Century Creative, the podcast that helps you thrive as a creative professional amid the demands, the distractions, and the opportunities of the 21st century. Welcome to episode three of season two. And this week, I'm delighted to welcome Todd Henry to the show. Of course, many of you will already know Todd through his best-selling books for creative professionals, including The Accidental Creative and Die Empty, and for his excellent and very long-running podcast, The Accidental Creative. In this interview, Todd talks about his latest book, Herding Tigers, Be the Leader That Creative People Need, which personally I'm delighted he's written as it fills a much-needed gap in the literature on leadership by addressing the very specific challenges you face if you're the leader of a creative team. So, obviously, you'll be glued to this interview if you're a creative director or a team leader, but even if you're not in that role yourself – Todd has a lot of interesting things to say about the kind of environment we need as creatives if we're to do our best work. In my own working life right now, I have two projects on the go. One is recording the interviews for season three of the 21st Century Creative. I'm personally feeling really inspired by the conversations with my guests, so I'm hoping that will translate into a great season for later this year. The other thing I'm working on is my first collection of my own poems, which I've titled The Illusionist. If you want to read the title poem, The Illusionist, it's online on my poetry site, so if you type 21stcenturycreative.fm slash poetry into your browser that will take you to a selection of my poetry. I'm probably about 70% done on the collection, so in one sense there isn't far to go with the book, but if you're a perfectionist like me, then you'll appreciate that final 20-30% to can take a long time. And I know perfectionism gets a bad rap these days with the culture of shipping something as soon as possible, and there is some wisdom in that in some contexts. But When it comes to my poetry, I'm happy to give my perfectionism free reign. Some of the poems in the book are over a decade old, and I'm still finding things to tweak and improve in them. Anyway, I hope the results will justify all the time I've spent on the collection. And in the meanwhile, I'd like to give a fist bump or a high five or whatever is the appropriate form for such things wherever you live to all of you who are spending more time and effort than is reasonably necessary on your own creative work, in the pursuit of perfection. Last week, we saw that we're spoilt for choice as 21st century creatives. We can either go the traditional route and work with publishers, galleries, record companies, movie studios or TV networks, Or we can do it ourselves by blogging, podcasting, YouTubing, self-publishing and selling from our own websites. But you probably can't have everything, especially when it comes to individual projects. 
If you sign with a publisher, you give up a lot of control over your book and a big chunk of the price of every copy you sell. If you self-publish, some people will look down their noses at you. If you work with a gallery, you could find yourself contracted to an incompetent gallery owner. If you sell your art from your website, you may not sell very much art from your website. If you write avant-garde experimental poetry, you probably won't become world famous. If you do become world famous at whatever you do, people will queue up to say this proves you're not a real artist. And so on. As I said last week, it's up to you to choose what game you want to play. And whichever game you pick will give you a shot at one kind of reward and very likely exclude another. Apart from the joy of creation itself, there are three main rewards on offer for creative work. Money, fame, and artistic reputation. Just to clarify the difference between the last two, fame is about quantity, how many people have heard your name, whereas artistic reputation is about perceived quality within your creative field. It's about how many influential people, such as critics, reviewers, or other artists, consider your work to be of a high standard artistically. You've probably noticed that it's perfectly possible for a creator to be held in high esteem as an artist while she's broke and most people have never heard of her. And on the other hand, someone may be world famous and earning pots of cash while producing work that the critics are scathing about. Now, I'm assuming that if you're listening to this, nothing is more important to you than the sheer pleasure of creating your work. But I want you to look a little beyond that to your professional ambitions, and ask yourself the question, if I had to pick two out of money, fame, and artistic reputation, which two would I pick? Of course, there are exceptions. Those annoying people like Charles Dickens or Pablo Picasso or Bob Dylan, who managed to become world-famous, filthy-rich, and indisputably great artists all at once. But even if you join them, and don't let me stop you, you'll enjoy the rewards all the more if you're clear about which ones you care about the most. If you're enjoying the 21st Century Creative, you may like to know there is more to this podcast than meets the ear. To help you succeed in your creative career or business, I've created an in-depth program, the 21st Century Creative Foundation Course. It covers the personal and professional skills you'll need to succeed as a creative professional in the 21st century. In other words, the stuff they probably didn't teach you at art school, on your creative writing masters, or wherever else you learned your craft. Things like how to manage your time, how to communicate your ideas, how to handle difficult conversations, how to close a sale, how to deal with money, how to grow your network, and how to attract an audience for your work. Altogether, there are 26 lessons in the course, full of practical advice, plus a worksheet for each one to help you put the ideas into practice. And I'm giving you the entire course for free. In case you can't quite believe your ears, go to 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash free course 
and see for yourself. When you get there, you can sign up with just an email address and you'll get your first lesson right away. By the way, the course has already been taken by over 11,000 students. And on the sign up page, you'll see lots of testimonials from other creatives whose lives and careers have been changed by the course. You can join them right now for free by going to 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash free course. Todd Henry is a familiar name to many 21st century creatives. He's the author of a string of best-selling books for creatives, including The Accidental Creative, Die Empty, and Louder Than Words. I joked with Todd that he's also the granddaddy of creative podcasters. He's been producing his show, The Accidental Creative, and sharing weekly tips and ideas for staying prolific, brilliant, and healthy since 2005. So, if you're not listening to his show yet, I highly recommend you check it out. Todd was originally a writer and creative director. These days, he consults for creative businesses who want to unleash the full talent of their creative teams. And his latest book offers a lot of insight on this topic. It's called Herding Tigers, Be the Leader That Creative People Need. In this conversation, I asked Todd about the challenges faced by creatives who make the step up from team member to team leader. He talks about the big shifts in your role and your identity, and also the balance of power with your former peers, and the big challenges that you'll face as a result. Todd also shares a lot of practical advice on the day-to-day business of creative leadership, including what to track to make sure creative projects stay on track, how to keep people fired up to create under pressure, and the surprising importance of stability for creative work. If you're a creative director or leader of any kind, or if you're about to make the transition into a creative leadership role, this interview will be essential listening for you. And even if you aren't yet in a leadership role, I think you'll get a lot out of Todd's insights about what it takes to create outstanding work in a demanding business environment. And if you think your own boss could do with a little help in getting the most out of you and your co-workers, and you're feeling really brave and maybe even a little tigerish, then perhaps you could share this interview with your boss. Todd, you describe yourself as an arms dealer for the creative revolution. You are a best-selling author of a string of books. You're an in-demand speaker, a consultant, a veteran podcaster. Was this how you planned it from the beginning or did it kind of evolve over time? Absolutely. Every single step of the way was perfectly planned (laughs) decades ago. No, absolutely not. I had no intention whatsoever of writing books, of really of doing anything other than helping, uh, you know, maybe a small group of creative people deal with some of the pressure of creating on demand. I mean, when I launched the Accidental Creative Podcast in 2005, that was really my only vision. I was leading a team of creative people, we were really struggling with the create on demand pressure that we felt to have to deliver great results every day. And we started playing around with some things that seemed to work pretty well. And so I started a podcast just to talk about 
this dynamic because there there were precious it's hard to imagine now but you know 12 years ago there were precious few resources for creative professionals and very few forums for for people to talk about the pressure of having to go to work every day having to come up with ideas deliver them on demand on time on budget all of those pressures and so i wanted to create a kind of forum to to talk about some of these dynamics and the podcast uh, very quickly took off. Uh, within a matter of a couple of months, we had thousands of people listening, which was amazing. Um, and that kind of led to a, a series of events that eventually uh, you know, resulted in my first book being released in 2011 called The Accidental Creative. Um, and then obviously the second book in 2013, Die Empty, the third book, Louder Than Words in 2015, and, and now the new book, Herding Tigers, uh, which kind of been funny. It's funny because it kind of brings me full circle to, to talking about creative leadership uh, within organizations and some of the unique challenges of leading creative people. But none of this was planned. It's all sort of been a gradual evolution. Uh, my friend Mitch Joel calls it the squiggly line, right? Embracing the squiggle uh -huh. um, that, that most careers are the result of um, keeping your eyes open, staying on the sort of staying forward on your feet, not back on your heels and being prepared to move when an opportunity strikes. And that's really been what the last 12 years has been like. Well, you know, if you were podcasting back in 2005, you certainly are, have been forward on your feet. And interesting, it really evolved as a reflection for your own learning and development as a team that you started creating the, the show to reflect on that. Yeah, that's right. I, I think many of the great... Uh, you know, ideas, businesses, um, you know, opportunities that present, present themselves are the result of our own pain, you know, the things that we're experiencing ourselves. And often, if we're aware um, and, and we're willing to pay attention to those little pangs, then, uh, it, you know, and, and, and try to figure out how can I spin this and use this as an opportunity to help other people navigate the same thing that I'm struggling with, often those are tremendous opportunities for us. Um, and that's really what it was. I, in the process of trying to solve my own problems of leading a team of creative people, I ended up um, you know, creating resources to help other people do the same thing. Tell us about the title, Herding Tigers. Why Herding Tigers and not the more obvious choice would be Herding Cats? Yeah, it, it is a play on that phrase. You know, I've always found that phrase uh, that leading, you know, you've probably heard it said that leading creative people is like herding cats at some point. And I've always found, found that phrase to be demeaning because it makes it seem like creative people are these flighty uh, people who just bounce around from thing to thing. You can't keep them focused. You know, that if you, if you don't mind them constantly, they're just going to wander off on their own and do their own thing. And I just always found that to be a really demeaning phrase. I mean, it's funny, it gets a laugh, but it's a laugh at the expense of these brilliant people who really want to do great work. They're very motivated. Um, they're extremely um, uh, intelligent and, and capable of grasping things like strategy and direction and all of these things that we often don't give them credit for. Uh, and so I was giving a talk one day and, and that phrase just came out of my mouth as I was speaking on stage. I said, you know, you probably think that leading creatives is like herding cats, but it's more like herding tigers. These are powerful, creative beings that have to be individually and strategically led if you want to get the best out of them. And there's a tremendously high ceiling to getting creative leadership right but you have to understand that there are certain things creative people need and you have to deliver those to them individually. You can't treat them like a group, right? You have to treat them as, as individuals, these powerful, mm -hmm. amazing, talented, creative individuals. And so that phrase sort of came out and it was just a line. Frankly, it was a line in the book. It wasn't even supposed to be the title of the book. And my, my brilliant editor, Nikki Papadopoulos at Portfolio said, um, I think you need to call the book <laughs> Herding Tigers, 
I said, what? Are you kidding me? No way. Um, that's such a, I mean, it, it feels like a very risky thing, right? Because it's kind of an out there. You have to kind of, you know, and she said, no, I really think you need to do that. And so we did. And the response has been, you know, sort of overwhelming when people see the book or, or hear the title, they start chuckling immediately because they get it, right? They get that. You exactly. Know, really, exactly. Yeah. It just made me smile as soon as I saw it. So I wanted to kick off with that and thank, well done, Nikki. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. That is brilliant editing because, you know, sometimes the, the job of an editor is to, to drag kicking and screaming the author across whatever line, <laughs> that they, you know, and, uh, and that's exactly what Nikki has done multiple times throughout the course of this project. I want to pick up on a little phrase you used just now when you said that the ceiling for getting creative work right is very high. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, I think we often focus on the, the challenges of creative work or the challenges of leading creative people and some of the difficulties um, that are involved in, um, you know, some of the insecurity that's involved with doing creative work. I mean, there's, there's insecurity baked into creative work because in many ways, when you're doing creative work, you're putting yourself out there. You're putting yourself on the line yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and you're, you're opening yourself up to judgment. And so, you know, when that happens, um, you know, people tend to position themselves and they, they tend to try to protect themselves and they develop all of these defense mechanisms to ensure that the most vulnerable, sensitive parts of themselves aren't exposed to that criticism. And that's why we, we hear things like, oh, you know, creative people have such big egos or they're so insecure and all of that. Well, you would be too if you were doing the kind of work that they have to do on, the, on a daily mm -hmm. basis, you know, um, often for very little, you know, recognition or reward. But when I say that the ceiling is really high, what I mean is that, yes, there are all these insecurities and, and the floor can be really low if you get leadership wrong. But man, the ceiling is so high if you get leadership right. If you really figure out what it is creative people need and you provide it for them and you create an environment in which they can thrive, in which those insecurities uh, aren't able to take hold, but instead they recognize that they're being protected. They have permission that you believe in them, that you've created an environment of clarity and stability for them, uh, that you've created an environment in which they can, um, they can take strategic risk, but within bounds, and they know that you have their back. If you do that, the upside, the ceiling is tremendously high um, with creative teams. So um, I think that often we talk about the challenges, but we don't talk about the upside of getting this right. You know, why would you want to hire brilliant people, brilliant creative people, put them on your team, provide all the resources necessary, and then just treat them like anybody else on your team, right? And just manage them by group and not try to individually and strategically lead them in order to get the best out of them because the ceiling is so high if you get this right. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Todd. And, you know, I think it's a shame that leadership and the specialist requirements of leading creatives is often neglected or overlooked. It's either dismissed as too corporate or we don't have time for that or we're creative, therefore we're not going to do that kind of thing around here. And it's why I think your book is so, so much needed because there's a huge potential here and it's so easy to crush it. It is. And, and one of the challenges is that most people who are leading creative teams are former creative team members themselves, right? So maybe they were a great designer, a great writer, um, a great strategist of some sort. Uh, and, and they were so good at doing those technical roles that they were promoted into leadership. Well, Leadership is very different from doing those technical tasks, those technical roles. It requires a different touch, a different approach, a different mindset. So there are tremendous uh, transition shifts that have to happen in order to move into a leadership role. 
The problem is that many people have never been taught what leadership looks like. Their only example of a leader is their former manager who may have been a total jerk, right? Or maybe was completely incompetent. And so they don't really have any kind of a roadmap or any kind of a path to what good creative leadership can look like, good freeing creative leadership. Uh, And so they just mimic whatever they've always known. And the problem is that just creates this echo chamber within the organization where nothing ever really improves because you have people training, people training, people who all are making the same mistakes and they don't understand the dynamics of trust and conflict and all of these uh, important elements that are involved in doing creative work. So for somebody who's making this transition from being, say, the star creative on the team promoted to creative director or art director or team leader or whatever the title is, what would you say are some of the most important things he or she needs to get their head around in terms of the shift in role? The first really challenging thing for most people is that you have a mindset shift from maker to manager, right? And um, there, there are a number of things you have to do in order to make this shift. But the first thing that you really have to embrace is you have to stop doing the work. And this is really difficult, right? Especially for control freaks like me. <laughs> this is really difficult because, you know, I, we we make our name doing the work. We make our name as tacticians, as people who are really great at accomplishing things. There's a there's a um, one of my favorite uh, series is based on the book Band of Brothers. Um, it's an HBO series that's about the uh, sort of the European. Um, campaign during World War II and the effort of the Allies to retake ground from from Germany. And there's a there's a scene in the series where uh, there are a bunch of troops, a bunch of American troops, who are poised to take a city called Foy. And the Germans have been occupying the town, and they were leading an effort to retake the town. And um, Captain Dick Winters is kind of leading this effort to, to go in, but he's he's sort of the, he's the captain, right? He's he's sort of back behind the lines, and somebody else is leading the charge, and he sees uh-huh. that his troops are getting pummeled and that the leadership isn't doing its job, and so he grabs his gun and he goes running to the line, you know, to lead in the charge, and. And his, basically, in in our terms, his manager, right, who was a colonel, he said, hold on, get back here. And he used some colorful language to get back here, put your gun down. He's like, don't. And so he grabs somebody else and sends him in to to lead the charge. In that moment, so Captain Winters was was a brilliant tactician. He was a great soldier. He was somebody who had fought many battles alongside his team, had led them in many victories. And so his first instinct was to pick up a gun and run to the front lines because that's what he'd always done. But he was reminded very quickly, your job is no longer to grab a gun and run to the front lines. Your job is to help other people accomplish the work. Mm -hmm. And so the transition and, and, and the corollary to creative work is this. It's really easy for somebody making the transition from maker to manager, the moment something starts going off the rails, to just jump in and try to control the work, to jump in and take over and say, here, let me do this. Because honestly, you could probably do it better than the person on your team. And and that's a really tempting thing to do. The problem is when you do that, your team's potential never grows beyond your own capabilities, never grows beyond you, because they'll always, they'll be trained to always wait for you to tell them what to do. That's what happens when you control your team, when you operate by control. And so the very first transition, the first mindset transition we have to make is from maker to manager, and it's from doing the work to leading the work. Leading the work is a fundamentally different approach because it requires 
a willingness from time to time to allow the work to suffer in the short term so that it can be great in the long term, so that your team can actually grow, so that your team can actually develop the skills necessary to accomplish new and more challenging tasks. And that's what a great leader does. A great leader accomplishes the work, which is, by the way, where most of us end that sentence, right? A great leader accomplishes the work, but accomplishes the work while developing the team to accomplish new and more challenging kinds of work. And that's what a great leader does. A great leader is creating an environment in which their team can grow in its capacity to do new and more challenging work. And as you do that, if you're willing to resist the urge to have to get it right now, to get to make it good now, then you can over the course of time, develop your team to do great work, to do work that you never even thought was possible because it's beyond your vision because you're developing your team to be able to do work that you would never have even thought of um, over the course of time. So a great leader uh, does the, accomplishes the work while developing their team to accomplish new and more challenging kinds of work. And that is really the mindset of the transition from maker to manager is this mindset from doing the work to recognizing you're responsible for owning all of it, for, for leading the work. And it's so hard, isn't it? I mean, not only if I'm putting myself in the shoes of the creative director, not only am I a relentless perfectionist and control freak, I mean, it physically pains me to put stuff out the door unless I think it's, it's the best it can possibly be, but also I know I'm going to be accountable for it. That's right. Well, and and also, by the way, I'm not talking about putting out substandard work. What I'm talking about is resisting the urge in the moment to jump in the moment you see things going off the rails. You have to let your team learn to solve its own problems. Now, there comes a time in any project where you're being paid for work and you're accountable for the deliverable. So there might come a time in the project when you do need to step in and help get things back on the rails um, much more tactically. But Many leaders do that far too early in the process, right? The moment they see something drifting, instead of having a strategic conversation with the team, helping them solve their own problem, instead, they feel tempted to come in and tell them what to do. The problem is when you teach tactics, when you only teach your team what to do, but you don't help them understand why it works, then your team is incapable of solving problems when something new presents itself because they understand what works tactically, but they don't understand why it works. So when it's broken, they don't know how to fix it. So what you have to do is is be patient. You have to resist the urge to grab your gun and run to the front lines and instead create an environment in which your team can solve its own problems. And and that's, that sounds, you know, Hey, that sounds like really nice, high lofty advice, right? From the outside. I know it feels much different when you're on the inside. I've been there. I understand that, but this is the principle. This is the guiding principle that great leaders have to embrace. If you want your team to do increasingly brilliant work, you have to resist the urge to come in and do the work for them. The moment you disagree with their decision. Instead, you have to allow them to push the bounds, to occasionally get off the rails and to grow and to learn so that they become more resilient on their own and aren't dependent upon you for every decision that needs to be made. Okay, great. So that's the principle. For instance, how do I put it into practice when, say, we've got the client, we're midway through the week, we've got the client presentation on Friday morning and they bring you something and you think this this is not going to cut it. What's my alternative? Instead of plunging in and saying, okay, leave it with me, because that's completely disempowering for them. What could I do instead in that meeting? So I think uh, in that situation, a great leader asks great questions. You have to help the team come to the conclusion on their own of why that work is not appropriate for the client. 
So what you have to do is, is get really good at asking probing questions to help them discern. You obviously know the answer. You know why you don't think it's appropriate. And it would be really easy for you just to say, here's why this isn't appropriate. Here, leave it with me. I'm going to fix it. I'll make it better. But instead, and I know that time is precious. I understand that this is challenging, right? But um, what you have to do is you have to get really good at asking, coaching the why with your team, helping them understand why the work isn't appropriate um, rather than just telling them, uh, rather than just saying, here's what it is, leave it with me, I'll figure it out. Um, you, you want to help them reason through and understand and get into the psychology of why it's not right, not just what isn't right with it. Because if you just tell them, this isn't right, go fix it. Here, go make it this. They're not really learning anything right? in that, in that circumstance. Now, again, I want to be really careful here because I know to some people this sounds like Pollyanna Pollyanna-ish advice, right? Like, oh, great, nice. You're telling me just, you know, if I just ask questions, then it's all going to work out well. No, I'm not saying that. When I'm, there are times, there are emergencies, right? We're, we're going to have fires in our work. If it's the day before a big client presentation, of course, there are times when you have to step in, you have to make it right. Okay. So I, I don't, I don't mean to sound like um, you know, you should never get directly involved with the work. That's not what I'm saying. There are times when a leader has to get directly involved with the work. What I'm saying is you have to resist the temptation to do that straight away at the very beginning, the moment you sense things going off the rails. I would almost argue with you that if you're two days before a big client presentation and they're still presenting to you things that aren't appropriate, you probably haven't done a very good job of setting the rails from the beginning with your team. Um, you know, if you're sort of at that place. So there might be a time a day or two before a big client presentation when you need to step in and exert a little more control, but that's probably the result of not having exerted enough, um, not, not setting uh, appropriate rails at the beginning of the process, if that makes sense. Sure. So you've got to think a little, you know, we're upstream, but where are we going to be when we get downstream a few days later? Right. That's right. So part of the art of leadership is really thinking ahead and thinking, well, how can I set things up so we we have fewer emergencies? That's right. And establishing you know clear rails at the beginning so that your team understands, hey, here are the boundaries. You have a lot of room to play. There's a lot of wiggle room in the middle, but we do have pretty firm boundaries on either side that you're going to bump into if you try to get outside of this. Um, and that's really the job of the leader is to set the rails and establish the playing ground for the team. Staying with the role of the leader, there's one point that you make that I think is really important and it, it can be really tricky to implement, which is you say to create stability, you need to distance yourself, brackets, a bit from your team. Can you talk about that that need for distance? Yeah, this is a really challenging thing for a lot of leaders when they're first promoted into a new role. And you know, like I mentioned, m many people are promoted from within an existing team and now they're leading their former peers. And this is a, this is a really challenging dynamic because you you know, you used to go out to happy hour with those peers and you used to, you know, talk about your personal life and it used to, mm -hmm. you, know, you used to complain about your own manager with those peers, right? Um, in order to sort of, you know, uh, sort of embolden your friendship in some way. And so that it's a really challenging thing because now you're in a position where you have to create some distance. And I talked to many people in the course of researching the book who had failed to make this uh, a part of their their um, their efforts early in their leadership, and as a result, there are all of these really dangerous um, dynamics on the team where 
you know, it was perceived that they were kind of favoring one person over another person because of their friendship and all of these, you know, really strange dynamics emerged. Um, the reality is the moment you are promoted into a role of leadership, the perception, the po power balance on the team has changed and the perception of the team toward you has changed forever. One uh, creative director I talked to said that this became really apparent to him when he was um, sitting at home one night with his family and he was kind of just scrolling through Instagram. And uh, he started noticing members of his team posting uh, happy hour photos. And his team had gone out to celebrate a big project that they worked on and had not invited him, right? To, and this is a <laughs> team that he had formerly been a part of. And he said, and that was the moment when he, you know, at first he felt really kind of hurt and offended, but he said, that was the moment I realized I had done my job as a leader because I had effectively distanced myself enough that the team felt permission to go out and celebrate without inviting me, but I was still a part of the celebration. I was still part of the team. They still saw me as, as one of them, but they didn't necessarily feel like it was appropriate to invite me to every happy hour celebration that they went to. And he said that to me, that felt like success because you know, when you are, when, when there's some, some, um, overlap and some ickiness as it relates to relationships on your team, there's always going to be, uh, there are going to be question marks hovering above every decision that you make. You're going to have to decide who gets to work on a prestigious project. You're going to have to decide who gets the promotion. You're going to have to decide who has to come in and work this weekend. And it's important in creative work that your team sees a, a healthy measure of objectivity in your decision-making and that they don't feel like your decisions are being clouded by your relationships. Now you can still have relationships with people on your team. You could still even be friends with people on your team. You still get a happy hour of people on your team, right? That's totally fine. As long as it's clearly understood where the boundaries are and that it doesn't become a matter of um, breached trust with your team because they feel like you're favoring some people over others because of the closeness of your relationships. Easier said than done, huh? Absolutely easier said than done. Um, and this is, you know, people talk about wanting to get promoted. They want to be the leader. And this is one of the things that I always push them on is this, do you really want it? Do you really want that? Is that really what you want? Because it's going to cost you something. Leadership costs us something. You know, everybody wants to be yeah. the leader, but very few people want to lead. Very few people want to uh, assume the responsibilities that come with leadership. And one of those responsibilities is the willingness to distance yourself a bit from people who may have been really great friends um, as you were coming up through the organization together. But now you, you have to establish a little bit of distance in order to maintain the perception of objectivity on the team. Another thing that you said that really struck me in the book was that creatives need stability and challenge more than anything else. Now, I think challenge, everybody will be, oh, yeah, I get that. Creatives like to be challenged. They like to have something new and different. But stability? Yeah, this is a, this is sort of a head turner for a lot of people because I think when when you say stability, what I think a lot of people perceive that to mean is that creative people want things to be the same all the time, right? And and that's not what I mean by stability. What I mean by stability is there has to be a predictable field in which creative people are playing. If the rules of the game are constantly changing, if your expectations are constantly changing, if um, the, the requests from the organization or from your clients are 
constantly changing without any sense of um, protection on your part, if you're not interceding on their behalf and speaking up for the team, then it's really difficult for them to do their work. They're not going to invest the blood, sweat, tears required to do creative work if they feel like the, the rules of the game are going to change tomorrow. Imagine trying to play a board game and you know every time you make a move, the other person says, well, okay, now that's no longer the objective. Now we're trying to do something different. Right? Well, it's, it's incredibly frustrating, but that's how many organizations function because nobody is protecting the people on their team. So there, there are really two elements of stability that came across in the research that creatives need more than anything else. The first is protection, which is what I just mentioned. You know, they, they need to know that somebody's looking out for them. Um, they need you to intercede uh, on behalf of the team with the organization or with the client to ensure that they're getting the best information that they can get at any given time, that the objectives are clear, making sure that you're getting buy-in from the powers that be, from anybody who is a stakeholder, that you're getting buy-in on their behalf on a regular basis and that the stakeholders understand that when they're buying into a direction or a decision being made by the team, they understand the consequences of that decision that, you know, it's not like, oh, well, two weeks later, I changed my mind just because I didn't think about it, you know, two weeks ago. And so now we have to do all of this rework because somebody changed their mind. That's incredibly uh, dispiriting and frustrating for, for creative teams. So as a leader, you need to protect your team. You need to protect their time and protect their attention, which means building buffers within the organization and helping them have the space they need to be able to do their work. And you need they need to know that you're not going to throw them under the bus, that when a, a creative risk is taken, that you are standing in the gap for them and that you're going to be accountable for that decision, that you're not just going to throw your team under the bus when something doesn't go right, because if you want to lose credibility with your team, just throw them under the bus one time and you'll never regain credibility as a leader. So that's really the, the first element of stability is protection. The second is clarity. You know, many leaders get really unclear when they're uncertain. They get really fuzzy about expectations because they're protecting their own rear, you know, at the expense of the organization, at the expense of the, of the team. So your, lead, your team needs you to be very clear about your expectations, be very clear about your principles, about what you value, about what you're going to reward and what you're going to punish. Um, they need to understand the rules of the game. Listen, the work that we do as creatives is inherently risky. It's inherently messy. It's inherently uncertain. We don't need to deal with the uncertainty of the work combined with the uncertainty of the organizational environment. So that's what stability is really about. It's about providing a degree of clarity and stability and protection in the midst of the uncertainty of our work so that we can be wild and creative and take risks in our work without having to worry about everything changing tomorrow. Um, so that's really what they need. With, with regard to challenge, it's not just pushing them to do new work. It's, I see you. I see you doing your work. I see the, the effort that you're putting into it. I see how you're taking risks. I have faith in you. I have faith in you as a creative professional that you have the ability to do this. I really do. I, I, I have faith that you can do this and I see you taking risks. Creative people need to be seen and they need to be known. And this is why, you know, I talk about herding tigers versus herding cats. You talk about cats just kind of being these, homo sorry for cat lovers, but these kind of homogenous, you know, they're all the same. They're all just flighty and they just kind of run around. You know, when we talk about if, if I put you in a room with a tiger, you're going to get really serious about figuring out what that tiger wants you know, and, and how to make sure that tiger gets what it wants so that you can get out of the room, right? And so, you know, 
creative people need to be seen. They need to be known. They need to um, have their leadership acknowledge the risks that they're taking, the emotional risk that they're taking in doing their work, and to, on a regular basis, have that reinforced to them. They need to know that you see them, that you know them, and that you care about them, and that you want what's best for them. And that's what I call faith. That's one of the components of challenge. But the other component of challenge is permission. You know, they, they need to feel permission to take risks, to try things, to experiment, to push the bounds. And it's difficult to have permission, which is a component of stability without, or a component of challenge without stability, right? You need to create the environment that gives them the space to take those risks, to take those challenges um, and, and to, to try new things and to push themselves to get out of their comfort zone. It's a really difficult thing to do. But when you get this right, like I said, when you get it right, the upside, the, the ceiling for this is so, so high. And I think this is a really important point about the role of the leader is that it's very easy for us to think about leadership as something that, that goes downward. I lead my team. But really what you're highlighting here is it's also your role to be a champion for your team and be an advocate within the organization and outside of it, you know, de dealing with clients and other stakeholders. That's right. And, and this, is, this is one of the overlooked elements of leadership is leadership isn't about being on top. Leadership is about being in the middle. The work of the leader is the work of being in the middle. You're, you are, yes, you are leading your team, which organizationally is below you, right? You're, you're leading your team and helping them get what they need and helping them you know, gain clarity and, and providing stability and challenge and all of those things for your team. But you are also accountable to the powers that be, the people who are leading you. Even the CEO of an organization is accountable to the board, right? Is accountable to the shareholders. I mean, everybody has somebody they're accountable to organizationally. And so every leader is in the middle. And your job as the leader, and this is the work of a leader, which is why I often ask people, are you sure you want to lead, right? Because the work of the leader is the work of managing the pressure up and the pressure down. That's really what you do. You're managing the pressure up from your team. We want to try new things. We want to experiment. When am I getting that promotion, right? Um, So-and-so isn't treating me well. Can you please have a conversation with them? Um, you know, this is the work of, of managing the pressure that's coming up, but then there's managing the pressure that's coming down. We need to make it great. We need to make it great by tomorrow. We only have a limited budget for this. You're going to have to ask somebody to stay later. Um, you know, So-and-so wasn't pleased. Oh, by the way, managing your own career, making sure that politically you're playing the cards right, which is a challenging thing as well, because um, you, ha you have to manage your own career. I mean, you have to make sure that you're gaining visibility within the organization. So all of these things are a part of what it is to be a leader, and you are squarely in the middle, and you're, you're, you're really managing all of those pressures and conflicts up and down. And by the way, also, you know, your, your boss's boss wants to come in and speak to a team member on your team and tell them what they expect from a project, and you have to intercede and say, hold on. Let me filter those requests, please. Come to me, right? Which is a difficult conversation to have because, you know, I mean, it's your boss's boss and, you know, you're thinking your own career. So it's really difficult. It's really challenging. But managing that pressure, really, those pressures coming up and coming down, really, that is the role of a leader. That's what a leader does. And with so much to keep track of in all directions, there's, there's another distinction I really like in the book where you talk about the scoreboard and the dashboard. Could you talk about that a bit? Yeah. So there are, there are certain things that we, we have to keep track of because it's how we're being measured, right, by the organization. So I call this the scoreboard. And the scoreboard really is, you know, are we putting points on the board? Are we accomplishing the objectives? Are we doing it in a way that's allowing us to stay healthy? You know, are we maintaining our values as an organization? I mean, these are all the kinds of very visible things that 
the organization measures us on. And, and we, we need to do that because that's how we determine if we're winning or if we're losing organizationally. But the problem is there are all kinds of beneath the hood kinds of dynamics that we often lose sight of in the midst of the process of trying to put points on the scoreboard. And I call these the dashboard items. The dashboard items are like a dashboard on your, on your automobile. Right. So, um, you know, if you, you could probably drive your car for, you know, quite a while these days, I mean, cars are pretty well made. So you could drive your car for, for quite a while without checking the, you know, the engine uh, light or checking the, the oil or the, the temperature gauge or all of those things. But eventually, if you don't pay attention to those, your car is not going to function properly. Your, your, your car dashboard is there to tell you how your car is operating at any given time. And as a leader, we need to understand what the dynamics are on our team that point to, hey, our team, my team right now, even though, yeah, we're accomplishing the objectives, my team is not necessarily functioning at peak capacity right now. And the reason is I have a couple of dynamics that I'm monitoring that are helping me determine how my team is functioning from time to time. So for example, are you noticing little um, bits of conflict cropping up in meetings where normally people get along really well, but but all of a sudden for some reason people are really irritable and they're they're fighting in meetings. People are rushing breathlessly into meetings. People are turning in work maybe maybe a half hour late, maybe an hour later than they said they would, um, maybe a day later. But you're noticing that people are starting to turn in work a little bit later than you would expect. Um, one uh, interview I did was with. Uh, a guy named Kirk Perry, who's the president of Brand Solutions at Google, and he told me that they they regularly monitor something called psychological safety, which is the ability of team members to speak up and to share ideas and how psychologically safe, basically, they feel on the team. And he told me that he was really surprised that his team had a, a relatively low um, mark on psychological safety in one of the surveys. And he came to find out that the reason that happened was because he uh, tends to have kind of a bit of a sarcastic, kind of snarky personality. And so he would like to make kind of snarky, sarcastic jokes. Well, he had a, a very multicultural international team that often didn't understand the nuances of snark and, and cynicism and, right. and you know, some of, the, some of the tools that he used when he was making jokes. And so they thought he was just being mean. You know, they didn't understand that he was kind of doing it in a loving way, you know, trying to sort of just kind of, you know, have fun with them. And that was, that was something that only came to light because they were monitoring that particular thing on the team. And it could have, I mean, had it not been monitored and curbed, and he's changed the way now that he communicates and approaches communication team, had that not been curbed at the time, I mean, it could have done tremendous damage. But because of that dashboard item that they were monitoring, they were able to uh, to pay attention to that. So uh, the, the answer to what should I monitor is going to be different for every organization. But I definitely encourage you to think about things like, you know, are people doing, are people working longer hours, but you don't really understand why it's happening? Right. So are people staying, you know, five or 10 hours longer on a, on a weekly basis, but you can't really put your finger on why that would be happening. Okay. That's a sign that maybe things are getting off the rails. Either people aren't managing their time. Well, you're putting too many meetings on the calendar and your team's trying to squeeze all their work in between or whatever. But like, are you noticing that people are, are, are working a little longer than you think they probably should be given the season that you're in? Are people running breathlessly in the meetings? Is there uh, undue conflict? 
cropping up? Are people not really sharing their thoughts or ideas in meetings? Are they just kind of sitting there waiting to, to get out of the meeting, kind of watching their watch? And these are all dashboard type items that you could pay attention to as a leader and then have strategic conversations to help help you identify what might be going on and how you might be able to adapt it. If you don't pay attention to this, over the course of time, just like if you don't pay attention to your car's dashboard, you're gonna you're facing a, a meltdown at some point. Um, so this is just a way of getting ahead of those meltdowns and making sure that you're monitoring the dynamics on your team. Right, and the art of this obviously is knowing your team and the work and the process well enough to know what to put on your own dashboard. It's not a a one size fits all. That's exactly right, and and that's one of the challenges in writing this book. Frankly, was that. Uh, you know, I heard a lot of examples from a lot of different people and a lot of different teams, but there's no right answer for any given situation. <laughs> that's that's the real challenge is that every leader has to do this work for themselves, which is why there are a ton of discussion questions in the book and challenges and exercises and things to do, because this is really the deep work that you have to do as a leader to figure out what's right for your circumstance. Right. And I mean, we could go on all day with these, there's some really great principles in the book. You've got so, you've got a lot of insight in here, Todd. You've also got a lot of practical tips and advice. It's certainly a book I'm going to be buying for my coaching clients who are in leadership positions, because there really isn't very much out there that is in this space that is really telling some, some challenging truths about leadership and offering some solid advice, but within the creative context. Well, and that's that's really we we talked we started the conversation talking about solving your own problem, and I, really what I wanted to do, Mark, is I wanted to write the book that I wish I'd had when I started leading teams, you know, seventeen years ago. Um, I I really wish that I had had a book like this to at least just give me a foundation, just a basic understanding of what I needed to be to keep my eye on as a leader of creative people. Speaking of challenge, I think it's time that we set our listener a challenge, Todd. Don't you? Oh, wonderful. So this is the part of the show where I ask my guests to set a creative challenge to you listening to this, wherever you're listening, and something practical that you can accomplish or start to accomplish this week as a way of following through on some of the ideas we've talked about. So Todd, what challenge would you like to set the listener? All right. So here's my challenge for the listeners. I, I just spent a, a tremendous amount of time talking to you as a creative leader about how it's not your job to do the work and it's not your job to do the work. The problem is that as leaders, we often get very disconnected from the thing that got us into our line of work to begin with. You know, we start off as a designer, a writer, whatever it is, and we love to do that work. And, and we're really good at it. And then as we become a leader, we become very disconnected from the work itself, from our, our first love, from our core passion. And so here's my challenge for you this week. I want you to engage in what I call secret work. And secret work is work that you're doing um, it's some, some way of expressing yourself creatively that you're not going to share with anybody, that nobody else is judging you on, that nobody's paying you for, nobody's looking over your shoulder. There isn't going to be a client calling you, asking you why it's not more purple or whatever, right? Like you're not going to have anybody judging you on this work, but I want you to engage in one hour of solid creative work this week that is purely for you. And I don't care what it is. You can if you've been wanting to work on a novel, work on a novel. If you wanted to design something, design something. If you want to just sketch for an hour, sketch for an hour. Whatever it is, write poetry, do whatever it is. I want you to do something creative just for you. Why? Because if you're not taking care of yourself as a leader, you will eventually begin to take that out on 
your team. You have to fill your well. As goes the leader, so goes the team. So goes the organization. If you're not taking care of yourself, it's going to be really difficult for you to take care of your team. So do something this week as a challenge. You do something um, that allows you to express yourself creatively and don't share it with anyone. This isn't for somebody else to see. This is purely for you. You're not a utilitarian creative. You're doing it for the sake of filling your well, challenging yourself, emboldening yourself, and helping you uh, get connected, reconnected with why you began to do this work in the first place. Thank you, Todd. Great, very timely reminder. So, okay, the book Herding Tigers is obviously available at all the usual bookshops. Where else can people go to find you and find out more about your work, Todd? So uh, I've been uh, doing the Accidental Creative Podcast since 2005. So uh, we do two episodes or so a week, Um, sometimes interviews with people, sometimes just tips and principles about how to uh, be a more effective uh, create-on-demand professional. So there we're at toddhenry.com, which is my personal website. Excellent. And I think it was the, the podcast was the first thing that I came across of yours, Todd. And I would really recommend, any, obviously, if you're listening to this, hopefully you're the kind of person who will enjoy podcasts for creative. So if you haven't already heard The Accidental Creative, that's definitely one I think you should add to your feed. So, Todd, thank you so much. As always, I get so much from reading your writing and talking to you. So thank you very much for, for sharing your wisdom with us today. Mark, thank you. And thanks for all of your persistence, for the great work that you do, for the way that you intercede on behalf of creative pros everywhere. Thank you for being a longtime champion for the, the work that I know both of us care so much about. Thanks, Todd. You have been listening to The 21st Century Creative, hosted by me, Mark McGuinness. You can find the notes for today's show with more information about my guest and links to the sites we mentioned, as well as all the archived episodes at 21stCenturyCreative.fm. If you enjoyed the show, then I hope you'll subscribe in iTunes, and I'm always grateful for your reviews, and also for sharing the show with your friends and followers. If you'd like to have the 21st Century Creative Foundation course delivered to you for free, giving you 26 lessons of advice and worksheets on carving out an original creative career, you can sign up at 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash free course. And if you are an experienced creative interested in getting my help as a private coaching client, you can learn about how I help my clients at 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash coaching. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll join me again soon. 